Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we come before you and we do ask that you will show us Christ and that you will use us to show others Christ. And Father, I pray that as we talk about this important uh, topic of faith that you will help all of us to just have a deep reliance upon you in every area of our lives, especially in the area of ministry. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we had an opportunity to host Tim Bryant, who's working extensively with our Biblical Counseling Center. And I think one of the things that we really took away from it, we were deeply encouraged by his vision for, for training uh, counselors. And that's really something as a church we're focused upon is training the saints to do the work of the ministry. And, and part of that is because it's actually commanded. Paul commands us in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. He says, and he gave us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, we all know that we have been saved by grace through faith, and we have been saved with a purpose, right? We are called to do uh, good works. God has us here on earth to do good works for him. And new Christians don't automatically know how to do this well, right? There is a development process. For instance, if you want to train somebody on how to share their faith or evangelism, uh, there's a couple places where you need to start. First of all, you want to make sure they're motivated, right? They understand the glory of God, the, the call to love God by sharing uh, the gospel about his goodness and his lordship. There's a call to love other people, to have compassion on lost souls, right? So they have to have the love of God in place. Then there's also some basic competencies that you have to have to share the gospel. What verses do you take people to? How do you walk through a gospel presentation to explain uh, the reality of sin, the need to uh, trust in Jesus Christ, the the idea that he died for our sins, and what does it mean to trust him, right? There's some basic competency and, and maybe some arguments to answer some objections. But ultimately, you can have all the compassion for the lost. You can love the Lord. You can be equipped to share your faith. But there is a final step, right? You have to actually do it. And that's terrifying for a lot of people, right? So with, with few exceptions... I've seen people tremble. They're scared when they share their faith. It really is a step of, of faith. And, and isn't that fitting? When we try to introduce people to faith and the importance of having faith in Jesus Christ, the mechanism of doing that ministry of faith is to have faith yourself as you do it. And so in John chapter, I'm sorry, Luke, wrong book, Luke chapter 9, you see, Jesus is training his disciples. He is preparing them for life without him. And in chapter 9, verses 37 through 45, we see that he is training them on the importance of ministering in faith. He wants them to have a faithful ministry. Now, in the context, Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and this is what he finds waiting for him. Luke nine thirty-seven. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. 
And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. And while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they, will, but they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So Jesus has six months of ministry left. And in chapter 9, it's really a chapter devoted to the training of the disciples. Remember, after he feeds the the 5,000, he asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter confesses the Christ of God. He gets that right. And then Jesus says, before you get your hopes too high, remember, I'm going to suffer and die and be betrayed. I will be crucified. But you must pick up your cross daily and follow me. You must deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow me. They are to make a radical commitment. And then he reminds them that those who are ashamed of me here and now, the Son of Man, when he comes back in glory, will be ashamed of them. And then he takes three of them up to the mountain and he shows them what he will look like in glory. They all get a vision of future Jesus. But now they come down from the mountain. And and it's almost like, remember when Moses came down from Mount Sinai? Here he is communing with the glory of God. And he comes down and what does he see but, but chaos? Rebellion. A lack of faith. And this is the one place in the gospel where Jesus sounds irritated with his disciples. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? With six months to go, this is where you are. There is a critical lesson that they are ministering They're actually trying to do the work of spreading the faith without faith. Isn't that ironic? You see, ministry ultimately is fueled by faith. Now, I want to give a little qualification here. There is a a school of thought out there where if you have faith, you can literally move mountains. There's this belief in in a faith force that can be accessed with your words. And so if you have enough faith and you trust God to give you a private jet, a G5, if you have enough faith, you will never fly commercial again. 
right? That is actually faith in a faith force. It's almost like the fervency of your concentration in claiming these things. If you have that kind of faith, you can get what you want. But that is not faith. Faith is defined by the object of your faith, the faith that pleases God. It is a dependence and a reliance on God the Father to do what only he can do. And that's the whole point of ministry. We do not have the power or the ability to do what God has called us to do on our own. People have tried. People have attempted it. But to do a a ministry in a way that is faithful to God, it must be full of faith. Now, we are not apostles, but we are their descendants, right? And all of us have been called to a ministry. We're to be equipped to do the works of the ministry, And there is training. You know, there is a desire to even do and to have that. And if you have both of those, that's great. But there's one more step that you need, which is to have faith. You need faith when you come to Christ. But that's not the only time you need faith. We all live by faith and we minister in faith. And so how do we do so? Well, from this passage, we have four truths that will help you to minister by faith and to have a faithful ministry. Beware of ministry without faith. Emulate Jesus' faith, identify counterfeit faith, and you follow Jesus in faith. So we'll go, go ahead and walk through this passage, okay? To have a faithful ministry, you have to beware of ministry without faith. It is possible to do ministry without a deep reliance on the Lord. Okay, it is possible to do ministry without a deep reliance on the Lord. Look at verse 37. On the next day... When they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Now, for a long time, the most famous painting in the world was Raphael's Transfiguration. And if you've ever seen the painting, it was actually his last painting, you had the glorified Jesus levitating with a bright cloud of glory behind him. You have Peter, James, and John all shielding their eyes and on the ground in the presence of Jesus, right? And so that is the transfiguration, right? It's, it's, it's a place of peace and serenity on top of the Mount Transfiguration. But then when you look down, you see dark shadows and angry men gesticulating at one another. And then you see this woman pointing to uh, an afflicted child asking for help. So there's this idea of peace to pandemonium, right? So God just confirmed that Jesus is his beloved son, his chosen one. You listen to him, right? This was the high point where they saw future Jesus and they go down the mountain and they're greeted by chaos. We know from the other accounts that the disciples were actually in an argument with the scribes. And what was the issue? Well, look at verse 38. A desperate man goes to Jesus and says, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out and says, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. 
So this father, he pleads and he begs for mercy. His son, as you can see, is having severe cases of epilepsy. Now, I do want to qualify this. Epilepsy is not a demonic illness. Often demons can take natural illnesses like fevers to torment their host. In this case, they correctly discerned that this child would have dangerous epileptic fits. If he was near water or fire, the demon would cast him down and torment his host. So, just to be clear, epilepsy doesn't mean you have a demon. But in this case, it did. They knew something was wrong. And the disciples, remember how at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus gave them power and authority over demons? This father must have heard about this, and so he begs the disciples to cast out demons, and this is a case of a failed exorcism. They tried, and they tried, and they tried, but they can't dislodge this demon from the boy. Now, we know from the other, we know, and we'll find out later on, is because of a lack of faith. And this begs the question, so how could somebody do something as miraculous as cast out demons without having faith? Well, if we go to the sequel of Luke, the book of Acts, we read another account of a failed exorcism. It is the sons of Sceva in Acts 19, starting in verse 13. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now notice, they didn't necessarily have personal faith in Jesus. Jesus was a name that they could use to drive out these demons. You see, the understanding in those days that if you wanted to drive out a demon, there are a couple ways you could do so. One, you get a really pungent smell. Make up this elixir that just stinks to high heaven. Put it under the nostrils of the demon possessed. And the demon say, I've had enough of this. And they'll leave. The other way would be to invoke some higher power to push out the lower power. And so, this Jesus seems pretty powerful. So these exorcists say, well, this Jesus who Paul proclaims, I'm going to go ahead and use his name to drive out the demons. And this is the response. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognized, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now for some reason this doesn't make it into children's Bible stories. Don't know why. Right, but they use Jesus as a technique, as a talisman, right? They, they, they admire Jesus for his power, but they didn't necessarily submit to him as Lord. So going back to the foot of the mountain, here are these disciples using their power, or at least the power that they thought they had, to do this supernatural work, and they are failing and failing and failing. And now, why are they failing? 
Well, Jesus answers the question in verse 29. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. So the man went from begging the disciples to begging Jesus. Jesus says, go ahead and bring him over here. The man acted in faith. But notice how he calls everybody a faithless and twisted generation. Now he's actually quoting scripture here. The first time that phrase, faithless and twisted generation, is used is in Deuteronomy 32.5. Now, in Deuteronomy 32.5, Moses is getting the people of Israel ready to enter the promised land. But not everybody is entering the promised land. The older generation was not. He says, they have dealt corruptly with him and are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. This is the generation that saw Moses perform all those miracles in Egypt. This was the generation that sacrificed a Passover lamb and they woke the next morning to find their sons alive and their Egyptian counterparts' firstborn sons dead. These are the ones who were led by a pillar of fire to the banks of the Red Sea. These are the ones who actually walked through the Red Sea that parted for them and then closed on the Egyptians. These are the ones who were fed manna in the wilderness and given fresh water from rocks. These are the ones who heard the voice of God on the top of Mount Sinai. These are the ones who were taken to the banks or taken to the borders of the promised land. But then they listened to the testimony of the spies who said they're too great to conquer. And they accused God of trying to take them into the desert to kill them. That is the faithless and perverted generation, right? They're without faith and they're perverted. The word perverted means to be twisted. If you put a nylon spatula on a burner, what's going to happen to it? It will be twisted and warped. And can you ever fix that again? Right? They're to be discarded, and that's the message here. They are cast out of the promised land, save Joshua and Caleb, because they were of a different spirit. Now, what's really fascinating about all this is we can understand the scribes and the Pharisees and all those people being a crooked and twisted, perverted generation. But he applies that to the disciples. They were ministering without faith. And the anger of Jesus comes. What are you doing? How can you think you could do ministry without reliance upon the Lord? This is more common than you think. When I was in California, I went to a conference in Orange County and I had a chance to um, tour a a relatively famous church. And as I went into the auditorium, I noticed that on every seat was a brass plate with various names on it. I asked, why are these names here? Well, they donated certain amounts of money so they can get their name on a plate. Right, that is actually a very shrewd strategy if you want to raise money for a university. It's a very good strategy if you want to raise money for a foundation to name somebody's, you know, to put somebody's name on a building. But is that how you build up the body of Christ? 
Instead of operating by faith, they use worldly means to motivate people to sacrifice and give. Not for, not for God's glory, not for the church's glory, but for their glory. They wanted their name emblazoned forever. And do you know what happened to that church? They went bankrupt and had to sell that building to a heretical church. It wouldn't last. Right? If, if you, if, when you look at what we are doing and the project that the church is a part of, is to spread the faith, to help people give glory to God, and if you do it in such a way that gives glory to man, you defeat the whole purpose for your existence. Ministry without faith, ministry without reliance upon the Lord, is an anathema to them. That's why Jesus says, O wicked, O perverted, and faithless generation. So how is it to be done? How is ministry to be done? Well, you emulate Jesus' faith. Look at verse 42. While he was coming, right, Jesus, again, he says, bring the boy here, which was an act of faith on the part of the father. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. Now, this word, threw him to the ground, is actually used of wrestlers, right? So this demon body slams this guy. He does not want to have an encounter with Jesus. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to the father, right? He rebukes, he heals, and restores the boy to his father, restores that relationship. And what is the aftermath? Look at verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of Jesus. Is that what it says? And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Isn't that fascinating? That Jesus did this miracle in such a way that it didn't draw attention to him, but it drew attention to the Lord. So how was this done? Well, we have to kind of fill in the gaps. Clearly it was done by faith because he indicts the disciples' lack of faith. In the other accounts, in let's say Matthew... The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said, because of your little faith. Because of their lack of faith, they couldn't do it. In Mark 9.29, he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but, but prayer. Now, Jesus has inherent power, but we know from the miracle of the incarnation, he chose not to use it. Jesus actually relies on the Lord, right? He prays to God. Trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to do these ministries. Have you ever thought about it that Jesus actually had faith? He had faith. He had reliance, right? Because that's really what faith is. Faith is reliance upon God. Reliance upon the Holy Spirit to do these great majestic works. That's how this ministry is done. And when it's done in faith, there's interesting fruit that comes with it. Is who gets the glory? Who gets credit for this miracle? God does. Jesus teaches his disciples in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right? That's, that's the point, to do ministry in such a way that people give glory to God. They give glory to God. They give God the credit. God has designed the church according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29, to give God glory. 
He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to, in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I, I mean, ministry is done in such a way that, that when we look at the great things that God has done, it's pretty clear that it was God who did it. Right? God is to receive all the glory. That's the purpose of creation, is to give God glory. That's the purpose of the church, is to give God glory. And when you minister without faith, who gets the glory? You. Why would God bless a ministry that gives humans and not God glory? It might seem to be blessed. It might seem to have lots of numbers, money, and finances. But in the end, when the purifying judgments of the Bema Seat and believers' judgment come forth, it'll be shown to be wood, hay, and straw. Ministry has to be fueled by faith, like Jesus' faith. But thirdly, you need to identify counterfeit faith. Not all, not all faith is real. Look at verse 43. They were astonished at the majesty of God. They're amazed at his majesty, at his power, at this raw display of God's visitation upon this poor young child. Did they believe? Did they believe? Was this astonishment a sign of, of spiritual faith? Well, remember, he calls them a perverted and faithless generation, right? He, he sees the wonder of the crowds, but then he turns to his disciples and he tells them, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. See, everybody loves a powerful Jesus, the Jesus who's going to come back and make everything right and restore Israel to the golden age. They don't want to hear about Jesus dying. Jesus had many fans, not necessarily followers. You see, there is a difference. You know, a lot of times people think that faith is the belief that God can do anything. Right? Faith is the belief that God can do anything. Is that faith? Like, it sounds like faith, Pastor Dave, but I think this is a trick question. Actually, faith is the conviction where you're willing to do anything for God. You see the difference? There's a difference between saying, I believe God can do anything versus I will do anything for God. Faith is the conviction of his goodness and lordship that wherever he goes, wherever he wants me to go, whatever he wants me to do, I have faith in his character and I have faith that leads me to want to do that. That's what he's looking for. I mean, so often people are drawn to the power of God and they want to harness God's power not for God's ends and God's glory, but for their own. A man has his wife walk out on him, and all of a sudden, he decides that I need to get religion. So he, he comes to church, gets involved in Sunday school. He wants to prove that he is a changed and transformed man. He's involved in Bible studies. He's pledging to be a good Christian father. He's trying to do all these changes, and then his wife gets remarried, and 
he stops. It's almost like going to church was a form of rehab to show that I'm a different guy, but when he doesn't get what he wants, what happens? You see, faith is, is not trying to harness God's power for your end. It's a reliance on God's power to accomplish his end. That is genuine faith. And that leads to our last point, which is to follow Jesus in faith. Look at verse 43. But while they're all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man. And remember the last time the Son of Man is mentioned? About the Son of Man coming in glory? And then Jesus shows them what the Son of Man coming in glory would look like when they see future Jesus? He says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Whoa. Wait a second. Jesus, you just like defeated this demon here, right? You conquered what nobody else could conquer, and you're going to tell us that, that you're going to be conquered yourself? I mean, that, that just doesn't make sense. Now, why were they saying that? But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So it didn't make sense to them because they didn't perceive it. And why didn't they perceive it? Because it was concealed. There's some external party that prevented them from understanding and embracing this truth. Now people will say, well, that must have been Satan. Well, if it was Satan, then God would have allowed it. God actually concealed this truth from the disciples, and this leads to a question of why. Why, why would God do something like that? Why, why would Jesus say this truth to them and God prevent them from understanding it? Now, keep in mind, God's not completely responsible for this because they had a chance to answer follow-up questions, didn't they? And they're afraid to ask. So they're responsible as well. Now, there are times where being blinded from spiritual truth is a form of judgment. In the parable of the soils, right, Jesus, he pivots and he speaks in almost coded language and parables and, and the disciples say, I don't even know what this means and Jesus makes it clear that this is a form of judgment so that hearing they may not hear, seeing they may not see, right? We understand that when unbelievers reject the truth of Jesus over and over again, it's like, all right, you're blind to it. But why would he do that to the disciples? Why would he do that to the disciples? Well, I think there's a, a lesson about faith embedded in this. You see, there is a temptation when we're asked to do something hard for Jesus, to endure something difficult, to ask the question, why? Right? Why? Are you doing this to me, God? What is the greater purpose behind this trial, this tragedy, the, the, this difficulty? Right? And those are questions that are, that are natural to ask for anyone who's been suffering, right? It, we think it would be really helpful right now, Lord, if you gave me some explanation for this. Why are you letting this person die? Why can't I get this promotion? 
why am I still single? Why did I end up married to this person? You name the trial. Why? Here's the problem with that. Why is also a demand. Did you know that? When you ask why, it puts a demand on the other person to answer the question. For you parents, remember the day when your child discovered why? Come to the table. Why? Eat your vegetables. Why? And at some point in time, you just say, just do it. Just trust me. Right, there is a transition that everyone needs to make where you stop asking why and you start asking what or how. I'm in this difficult marriage, Lord. Instead of asking why, what do you want me to do and how do you want me to do it? Do you see which question is of faith? At some point in time, the disciples need to stop asking questions and just die, deny themselves, pick up their cross daily and, and follow him where you focus on the what and the how, and that's ultimately faith. I think about the example of Abraham. Abraham's rightly identified as the father of faith. He was told by God that I'm going to make you a great nation, and it's going to be done through your son, Isaac. And then God tells him, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. We read the story in Hebrews eleven seventeen through 20. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He didn't ask why. He did what? And his question was not why, but how. Okay, God, you want me to do this, and I'm going to do this. You told me that I need to offer up my son, but you also told me that my son is going to be this great nation, that he's going to have descendants and he doesn't have any kids yet. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Right? So he's raising the knife, and he doesn't ask why, but how? Well, apparently I'm supposed to obey God by offering up my son, and God will then raise him from the dead. He was asking how, not why. And he is the father of faith. Right? So we have certain commands that we are called to do, right? I look at one of the most impossible commands given to us is in Matthew 28. At the end of his ministry, he's about to ascend into heaven. He takes his disciples and some of his followers, and Jesus says to them, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he's telling a group of 12 plus followers that you are to go to the whole world. Now, they had a concept of the world that was huge, but they didn't even know about North and South America. 
right? So they're to go to the whole wide world. And then once you get past the logistics of actually getting there, how do you communicate with the people when you are there? And how do you do it when you're swimming upstream against the promised persecution that Jesus told them about? Right? This was an impossible task. But there's another impossible task here that's even more difficult. Like when you think about taking the gospel to all nations, you know, Coca-Cola was able to take their product to all nations. You ever thought about that? You ever seen those Aborigines with a Coke bottle? I mean, they're able to cross all those barriers and do production, do all the logistics, right? They're able to, to do that, to get some sugar water out there, right? That's, that's impressive, but there is another obstacle that interferes with the Great Commission that makes it a truly impossible task. And that is the condition of the human heart. Ephesians 4.18 They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them, Due to the hardness of their heart. Well, that's not a very flattering view of humanity. I'll try this one. Romans 3.10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Like when we talk about people who are lost, they have no inclination for the things of God. I remember talking to a lady from Sweden on, a, on the airplane. I was flying back from a missions trip to Russia. And as I was talking to her, I was just asking her questions like, do you believe in an afterlife? Do you believe in God? And, and there was no anger or animosity from her. It was just sheer apathy. I've never thought about that. I don't plan on thinking about it. It's just not even a part of my life. It's like, Wow. Right? That is because of the condition of the human heart. There's animosity, there's apathy, there's talk to me about any topic other than this. Right? When you think about the project of evangelism, it's terrifying for that reason. And so you want something so badly and you think, well, how, how can I move them towards that? How can I you know, help them come to the faith? And there's temptations to use extra faith means to do so. For instance, I'm guilty of this. There can be this belief that perhaps I could argue people into the kingdom of God. If I find the right argument, the right approach, say the right thing to them, boom, they will be converted. But this is what the Bible says. Romans 1.18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Right, the idea of suppress is like being in a pool and pushing down a giant beach ball, right? They are laboring and pushing down because they don't want to believe. That is their heart disposition. When they hear the gospel preached to them, this is what they hear. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. When you share the gospel... They think you're an idiot, right? There is a sense where they don't want to turn away from whatever sin they have. It could be sexual freedom, self-righteousness, or self-autonomy, right? That is an issue, and arguments won't change that. But then you think, well, maybe, maybe if there's just some tragedy, 
oh, I've heard so many testimonies about so-and-so getting cancer or going through a divorce or somebody died or losing their job, and that's when they come to faith. So I'm going to pray for tragedy in their life. And if there's enough tragedy in their life, if they're so broken and everything in the world turns on them, then they'll come to Christ. And this is where Revelation is pretty instructive. Now, in Revelation, we find people in a personal crisis. Namely, half the world's population has been killed off by the different various judgments of God, right? That's a crisis. Seas turned into blood, crisis. Demonic locusts attacked, also a personal crisis, right? They're losing a lot. And yet in Revelation 9, 20 through 21, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. So I think, well, maybe they need more judgment, more things taken away from them, and then they're going to repent. Well, Revelation 16, 9 through 11. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. Oh, they're about to convert now. And cursed God of heaven for their pains and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Wait, these tragedies were supposed to bring you closer to God, and now you're even more angry? Oh, what's going on here? Why isn't this working? Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately say who can understand it. It doesn't matter what you say or what happens to a heart that's in rebellion against God, it will still be in rebellion. Mark 7, 21 to 23, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile a person. Right? This is a logistical nightmare. So how do you change this heart? How do you change this heart? What can transform it? Ezekiel 36, 26. And I, God speaking, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Do you know who can change the heart? Right, God can. Can you do it? Can I do it? I mean, sometimes people will bring evangelistic prospects to Dave you know, Pastor Dave, say, Dave, can you do this? Uh, I can try. But I'm going to say the same thing that you're going to say. It's the word of God used by God to pierce the division of the soul and the spirit, right? It's the word of God that's used by God to change and transform people. This is why ministering in your own power doesn't make any sense. We cannot transform anyone. And yet, here we are. You guys are all quietly, patiently sitting in a room listening to the Word of God. Do you know why that is? 
Because God has given you a new heart. God has done a work in your life. And if he can save you, he can save anyone. And that, that, that's the promise that we have. And that is why when we minister, it must be done in faith. Right? Ministering in faith means you obey God, trusting in God's promises to transform souls through the proclamation of the gospel. Faithful ministry means that you obey God, trusting in God's promises to transform souls through the proclamation of the gospel. It's that simple. We just do what and how, and we let God handle the rest. Now, there's some of you here who, perhaps you're pretty troubled by this bad heart business and by this reality that you don't really have faith and you kind of wonder, what, what am I, what am I going to do? How do I address this, this dangerous situation that I find myself in? What do you do if you don't have faith and, and, and you're concerned about it? Now, in the parallel account of this passage in Mark, the father comes to Jesus and says, you know, if possible, can you cast out this demon? And this is what Jesus says in Mark 9, 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can, what do you mean, if you can? All things are possible for one who believes. Not because I believe in the faith force, but because I believe in Jesus. And this father takes that rebuke to heart. And do you know what he says? Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, I don't have faith I have little faith. Could you give me more? Now, why would God ever turn away that request? I mean, if that is the desire of your heart where you believe and you think, ah, I just don't believe enough, you can try to muster the strength in yourself to have more faith. Or you could just frankly go to God and say, God, I need your help to trust you more. And our faithful Father will give that to you because that's what he does. And so, if you struggle to even have the faith to begin a faithful ministry, you ask God for faith, God will give you faith. And then you can begin to have a faithful ministry. Let's pray. Father, I come before you, and I know that there's nothing that I said, there's nothing that I can do to change the human heart. And I ask for forgiveness for all the times I relied on my own strength and not yours. Father, I pray that as a church, as we seek to reach this community, as we seek to build up the body of Christ, that we will seek to do so in faith, actively relying on you and trusting in you to do so. And Father, when lives are changed and transformed, when the church is built, when the kids come back from camp transformed, that we will give you the credit and the glory for doing so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.